NWP Radio. You're listening to NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. NWP. Happy blue sky, sunshine, lapping waves, blue flowers, monarch butterflies, all right, and summer reading for everyone. My name is Brian Ripley Crandall. I'm the director of the Connecticut Writing Project at Fairfield University. Um, I'm once again thrilled to co-host another episode of The Right Time with the one, the only, the stunning, the brilliant Tanya Baker. So how are you gardening these days on the West Coast, Tanya? Hi, everyone. I'm Tanya Baker, Director of Programs at the National Writing Project. And Brian, I never know how the show's going to start. Um, I wish I had a green thumb, so I practice. It's not very good. But I do have some tomatoes that might make it, so that's really exciting. Uh, but you know, honestly, one of the best seeds we've planted is this show with you. Here we are a year after we started and now we have a field of resources already bloomed for the National Writing Project Network. The only show I know of where teachers and writers come together to discuss books and writing processes. I am thrilled, beyond thrilled, that we have author Rachel Ignatowski and teacher Sonia Galaviz on our show tonight. Welcome to the show, everyone. So yeah, these shows have become a bouquet of life for me this past year too, Tanya. And that is why I couldn't wait to ask Rachel Ignatowski to be part of it. So in February, I received a copy of What's Inside a Flower and Other Questions About Science and Nature. And within a week, I was featuring it in all my content area literacy classes and within all my professional development. Ah, uh, let me grab it. It is a stunning, okay, no, 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 no. It's an exquisite book and I knew immediately that the benefits for teachers, for kids, for learners, for families would be incredible. It would just enhance the field of literacy. So I jumped onto cyberspace and began to learn more about the author and I learned the following. Rachel Gutowski is a New York Times bestselling author and illustrator based in Santa Barbara, California. She grew up in New Jersey on a healthy diet of cartoons and pudding and graduated from Tyler School of Art in 2011. Her work is inspired by history and science. She believes that illustration is a powerful tool that can make learning exciting. She has a passion for taking dense information and making it fun and accessible. That's why I love it. Rachel hopes to use her work to spread her message about scientific literacy and feminism. It's the art though. It's the illustration, it's the colors, it's the knowledge. I was sold immediately and I'm so excited to hear this interview. Tanya. Well, Brian, as you know, when you told me that Rachel would be part of our show, I sort of leaped in the air dancing all at once. I love her books. And when you said, who might be a good teacher? I didn't even let you finish the sentence. And I said, it's got to be Sonia. My friend, Dr. Sonia Galaviz is a fifth grade teacher and STEM coordinator at Garfield Elementary in Boise, Idaho. She's taught for 19 years in Title I schools and is passionate about public education. She's a coach for the Boise State Writing Project and is a teacher involved in the National Writing Project's collaboration with the Himalayan Science Project, which works with Tibetan Buddhist monastics in India. In 2017, Sonia received acknowledgement from the National Education Association Foundation, winning the National Award for Teaching Excellence. Most recently, she was named Idaho Human Rights Educator of the Year for 2020 by the Wasmuth Center for Human Rights. She received her doctorate in the spring of 2020 from Boise State University in STEM education for underserved population. She considers herself public education and union evangelist. Left to my own devices, I would simply have introduced her as my friend and fellow conspirator. <laughs> now, it is my pleasure to turn the show over to Sonia, who will introduce the writing, the writing prompt for tonight's episode. Thank you, Tanya. Uh, Rachel, I'm so excited to have you here in this space. Oh my gosh, if you could see my heart through my chest. <laughs> Very exciting, so let me just say this. Um, so for the writing, the writing into this moment prompt, I really thought about one of my favorite books of Rachel's, which is Women in Science, 50 Fearless Pioneers Who Changed the World. And there's this companion journal that goes with it. I love science. And it really helps 
girls or whoever's writing in the journal, people think through the everyday science all around them, and it gives them prompts along the way to explore as they're um, doing the journal in, in uh, collaboration with the books. So I'm taking one of Rachel's prompts that are in, that's in the journal. So this prompt is, name three people in your life who give you strength. How do they encourage you? That's fantastic, Sonia. Um, I'm gonna allow listeners to pause there and write about that or to come back to it later. But for now, I'm gonna um, stop sharing my screen. Brian and I are gonna leave and we'll uh, allow you to have a great conversation with Rachel. Thank you. Thank you guys so much for this amazing introduction. I, I, I feel like I'm talking to a celebrity. I'm so excited to meet you, Sonia. Thanks for agreeing to be with us when, you know, Tanya and I have worked together the last few years and on some other projects for the writing project. And I just, this was a very exciting opportunity. So I am thrilled because um, you embody the female strength that I want my students to see and your science focus and your beautiful art. It touches so many lives. I mean, I'm sure you know, but I just wanted to tell you from a personal account, how awesome you are and how much your books mean to us. Oh, well, I, I make my books specifically with teachers like you in mind as tools that you guys can use in your classroom. So when I hear about teachers like using my book to either like be the structure for a writing project or to like infuse into their science le lessons or their art lessons, um, it just makes me really excited um, because it's, you know, you work on something alone in your studio and you just hope that it does the function that it's supposed to do out in the real world. And then hearing that it's doing it's the work it's supposed to be doing, it just makes me really happy oh, to hear it. <laughs> that's awesome. So um, people who would wa watch this, of course, I'm sure they know your work. It's very um, identifiable. Your books are beautiful. They have a very distinct cover. But for the, on the inside, you kind of have um, a, a flow that you take where you give the background of women. Um, it, you know, and I'm thinking of the, the last book that I used personally, and I'll, I'll tell you about that. But your women in science, you talk about their journey, you talk about their hardships. You know, it's not all just this rosy glow, you know, something that might be, you know, posted on the, you know, an internet or Wikipedia. It's something, it's really, you, you get to know them personally, who they are, these women, women in sports, women in art, women in science. And so because that's how you set up your women for us as a reader, I would love to know your journey. What's a little bit about you that if you were on the, you know, on the page of one of your books, please tell us about um, your journey, your path to this work as an author illustrator. Um, yeah, well, okay, like if I was writing about myself, especially the art style and the way that I structure my books, I, I have to go all the way back to when I was just a little kid mm. and I struggled with reading. Cause um, for me, reading was not fun and it was a really hard thing. Um, I had uh, exotropia, which is a, like a really fancy way of saying I had a lazy eye, um, which meant that like when I looked at a page of text, I would get this huge migraine headache and I wouldn't be able to really read or focus. And then on top of that, um, I was getting tested for dyslexia and other reading disorders. It ended up I didn't have um, a learning disorder. I just wasn't connecting with the materials the way that my teachers expected me to at grade level. So um, around like I would say around like late second grade, third grade, I began reading comic books and heavily illustrated texts about like world famous artists, about like, it's it, like I read like the Iliad and the Odyssey, but like in comic book form. And for the first time I was reading and really connecting with the material. Um, the illustrations gave my eye a place to rest. Um, it gave me a place to focus and pause. And it also allowed me to tackle the information in my own way instead of it just being a jumble of words on the page. Mm -hmm. So now as an adult, I really kind of want to make resources like the books that helped me so much when I was a little kid. So whenever I'm structuring my books, I think about how can a reader approach this in their own way? Um, how can they jump around the page if that's something that they personally need to do? And how can they learn at just a glance? So, because um, in women's science, we talk about stuff that's like 
kind of really complicated. Like we talk about like particle physics, we talk about hyperbolic mathematics, which I had to get a crash course in before uh, writing about this. Um, and how do you get people who feel a little intimidated by these subjects comfortable with them before they even read a single word? And that's, that's what illustration can do. Um, I went to college for illustration um, and graphic design. I went to Tyler School of Art in Philadelphia because I knew when I was 15 that I wanted to be an artist. And I started taking myself really seriously and paying for my own uh, classes in Philadelphia. I would take the little train by myself and go take classes. And I used my own money to like fund all of that. And then I, it was really competitive even getting into art school because financing that is really hard. So I, I, I applied to all the scholarships, everything, wrote all the grants financed my way. And um, yeah, Tyler School of Art at Temple University, they took care of me. And um, I graduated with a job in hand at Hallmark Greeting Cards in Kansas City, Missouri. Oh, you're kidding. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I went from um, doing these like really intense, like corporate projects almost in school to making little happy birthday greeting cards right out of school in, in Kansas City, Missouri. Um, and uh, you may already know this, but um, Kansas City, Missouri has some of the most underserved uh, classrooms in the United States. Um, and Teach for America actually has a really large presence there. And I began as like someone who was like new to Kansas City, all the Teach for America kids were also new to Kansas City. I became friends with all those teachers. And it's actually by listening to what they needed and listening to the struggles that they were experiencing in their classroom with some of their students. Some of them were ESL, um, like newly coming to this country and they were struggling with reading. Um, hearing those stories, and it made me wanna create artwork that could help them because that's the skill I have. It's like, that's all I felt like I could do. I'm like, I'll make some art for you guys to use in your classrooms. Um, and that actually started um, my entire career that you see today was talking to teachers, listening to their needs. I started a whole like side business on Etsy selling posters inspired by the stuff I was like making. And um, I was able to quit my job and just dedicate myself to creating work that serves teachers and is educational content. So yeah, that's, um, that's it in a bag. <laughs> okay, two questions, hold on. Yeah. Are you telling me that there are Hallmark cards in circulation with your art on it? Yes, yes. Yes, there are. And it doesn't really look, there's still, okay, I only worked there for four years. I quit to do my own thing at age 25, back in like early 2016. Um, but there are still cards in circulation with even my name on the back. Some of them have my name on the back of them. Um, my, I would have to say the, uh, my prize card is, um, it's a hot dog with a smiley face on it that says, I'm a wiener. There we go. And I, and I got card, Rachel, I need that card. And I got cards and I got cards. So it was, um, Hallmark was a great place to work because there were so many people who were older and more experienced than me who have been professional artists for like years and decades. Yes. And they, they gave me such good advice when I was just 21 that allowed me to hit the ground running with my career, how to price your art, how to protect yourself, everything. So it was just, it was like going to grad school, sure. getting to work at Hallmark immediately. And um, it, it's funny, Kansas City is still like a place where there's tons of artists. It's, I call it like there's tons of artists and tons of teachers. That's Kansas City. That's not bad. That's a good mix. <laughs> so, I, you know, Listening to that journey, when did you decide that I am going to write narrative along, you know, with this, or I'm going to speak to the narrative of these incredible people? Like, when did that come along? along that's, that's really funny. Um, so I started off, I love books, even though like reading was really hard for me as a kid. I love books. I love them as like physical objects that exist in the world. And when I was in art school, I took, especially if you're going a graphic design uh, track in college, you can take classes that teach you everything about making a book from like the computer programs you need to know, like InDesign to like literally physically structuring and building a book with your hands. Yeah. So I knew the ins and outs of making a book. I knew I wanted to make books. Um, the thing is, is that 
making a book is a really big project that requires a lot of time and time is money. Mm. So instead I created posters that in the back of my head, I knew they were going to become a book series later. So I created these women in science posters and I put them out in the world. I um, put them on my online shop and I began selling them to science institutions all over uh, the, the country and the world. And what was cool about it is that um, because I was making the kind of art that I wanted to be making stuff about science, stuff about history, about topics that I thought were important, not just happy birthday cards. Um, I started getting contacted by people to do the kind of work that I wanted to do. So um, cancer research foundations um, contacted me to like, help um, kind of like read through uh, the documents that their scientists were writing um, to help then create something that was easy, so easy a child could understand um, so that then they could actually get more donors because donors aren't the most scientifically literate people in the world. Um, They just have a lot of money and they believe cancer research is important. Sometimes they don't understand exactly what they should be funding and it has to kind of, so basically, Long story short is I began uh, to be a science communicator almost naturally through the artwork that I thought was so interesting. So I started creating art that was science communication and then I started getting sought out to do science communication. And it was one of those things where it's like, as the opportunities came, I always said yes. And I learned on the job for about, you know, four years before I even went on my own. And by then I actually got um, a publishing, several publishing companies sought me out because they saw the work I was doing and said, do you want to make uh, your woman in science series a book? And I said, absolutely. In fact, I already got a pitch ready. I know how to make a pitch. Like I got a pitch ready. And they asked me, they're like, are you an author as long, uh, uh, along with being an artist? And it's like, I just said, yes, I was. <laughs> I'm like, you know, I, I think anyone can be a writer as long as you have something to say. And from that moment on, I dedicated myself to writing like 500 to 1,000 words a day. Mm. And I was like, I am going to do this. Like, I'm going to learn while I'm writing my first book how to be an author, basically. Mm. And I, and that's, that's what I always tell kids. Like, even if you struggle with writing and you struggle with reading, it doesn't matter if you have something important to say. Because there will be a team of people that clean your grammar up and make sure you spell everything correctly. It's your ideas in your mind and structuring um, an argument or structuring a narrative or a story. That's the important part. Mm-hmm. So um, that I trusted myself to do. So I went and I did it. And um, since then, I've published a book a year for the past six years. Wow. <laughs> that's not a small thing. Wow. That's incredible. I'm so glad this is being recorded because that whole story of your journey, I am definitely showing my students in the fall so they can like digest that and know that their work is valuable and that they need to like keep doing it. I love it. Um, You mentioned your women focus books and you have women in science, women in art, women in sports. And so will you tell us a little bit about what was your vision for those books? I know you have several others and we'll get there, but what was your vision for those books and who was the audience you were hoping to reach with with those and, and why? So I started my focus with women in science kind of around 2013. And it's something really interesting happened in 2013. Um, the, you know, the census is taken every 10 years. I'm like a really cool kid who talks about the census quite a bit. Um, so the US census was taken in 2010 and it takes a while for them to kind of like process that data and like kind of like understand what it all really means. So then in 2013, a big report was released showing the discrepancy of women in STEM fields mm-hmm. and more women were graduating with high degrees than ever before, but the percentage of women getting actually hired in those fields were so much lower than the percentage of women graduating. So what's going on? Why is there this big gender gap in STEM and what can we do to fix it? And of course, policy, uh, creating pipelines to like, uh, you know, places where there weren't pipelines before, uh, making sure to get underrepresented communities involved in the gatekeeping process, all those things are like bottom line, the most important. But what can I do as an artist? 
I could do kind of like the hearts and mind part of that. And I could try and help make women who have been in history doing science all this time, whose stories have just not been told. I can make those, um, I can make those into pop culture. I can make those in the public eye and I could kind of change the story that people have in their head of what a scientist looks like. And I could show real life role models that haven't been showcased before to a whole new audience because I can make art. So I kind of thought about like, what is my power? what is my skills and how I can flex that power. And for, as an artist, that's kind of a thing that you could do. You could help tell stories and you could help kind of change cultural context of um, who we are like saying our heroes. So that was a little complicated, but um, that was my thought process. And I was talking to all these teachers and I was complaining about like how like, there, there are people I know who don't even know who Marie Curie is. And she's like one of the most famous scientists ever. And women have been doing science since like pre, like prehistoric time. I mean, the first woman who got paid was like, what, like in like the 1600s, the 1700s. Um, and it goes even further back than that. Um, but how come we don't tell their stories in science class? Why don't we tell their stories in history's class? Um, and I was kind of like shouting at all my teacher's friends about this. And they were like, Rachel, we don't have time to research this ourselves and there isn't any reference books for us to easily use to put into our classrooms. And then I realized that I was complaining a lot and I could actually make the book that I wish existed for my friends to use in their classrooms. So that's when I started the project and I started creating posters of different women throughout history that I thought were really cool to try and pique people's interest so then they would go online and learn more. And when I was, uh, when the publishers came and asked me to do a book, I was like, fantastic. Like, I'm ready. I have a list. I'm checking it twice. Right. We're doing this thing. And I was like, I, I, like, I can create the reference book that I wish was in classrooms for me when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And so there's 50 women in there. Some of them are like more well-known, like Jane Goodall. And like I said before, Marie Curie, but some of them, um, like people had, like people in the sciences uh, didn't even know about them before this. So we have like people like um, uh, Lisa Meitner. So if you're in like, uh, if you're in uh, like nuclear physics, you may know who Lisa Meitner is, but most people don't know that she's actually the person who discovered fission. Like she discovered nuclear energy. That's, mm -hmm. that's huge. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the, t a lot of the reason that we don't know previously who she was is because history really left her out. She wasn't awarded the Nobel Prize for her work. Only her lab partner was without her. And um, by excluding these women from the narrative of our shared history and of scientific history, we make it so that it's harder for kids now to see their future. So mm -hmm. um, that's why I made them. And I made them to be a tool in, tool in classrooms for like that goofy, you know, the goofy like uh, biography project that like every middle school or an elementary school does like once a year during Women's History Month. I'm like, that is what this book is for. The book is the starting point for them to do that very important like biography project. And um, it's been working. That is incredible. I love just the image of you sitting around with your teacher friends and saying like, well, you should have this and this. And they're like, it doesn't exist. And you're like, well, I'm just going to make it. Then. <laughs> I'm just going to make it for you, for you to use. And yeah, so that's been, I mean, that's a, a huge audience base of yours, right? It's teachers, teachers like me who want to have empowering female voices in the room, who want to reflect history more accurately, who want to bring, um, different, more diverse voices into so many things that kids come in, you know, into contact with every day that they, you know, didn't know maybe who discovered that or who popularized it or whatever. Um, so it's definitely a conversation starter or a reference book, like you said, you know, for, for kids and for um, teachers. But I wanted to tell you, just so you could put this in your little heart calendar that this was happening, so you know you have an audience of teachers and you know it's being used in classrooms around the country. But the writing project, the National Writing Project works with the Himalayan Science Project with monastics, both uh, nuns and monks in the Buddhist communities in India. And a couple of years ago, 
the Himalayan Science Project wanted to do an iteration of the, that science work, but with nuns, with an all-female group of nuns. Um, and Tanya was spearheading that with some colleagues in California, and I got roped in as, as a teacher, as a writing project teacher, um, someone who is a big science evangelist and loves teaching and worked in diverse communities. And so as we were able to go to India, um, pre-pandemic craziness and do and do science work so science and leadership empowering these women and we continually were asking them why should nuns learn science and his holiness the dalai lama has you know made a huge commitment and priority of science for his nuns and monks and so that was uh, a lot of their driving force of like his holiness thinks it's important and therefore, you know, here we are. And as we continued our work months and months and then after a year, really trying to evolve the conversation into them internalizing, why should you, a woman, right? Uh, you know, a monastic, clear across the world, why should you learn science and how we, we were talking as the faculty, you know, out here in, in the US, like how can we make this accessible for them? Well, then COVID hit and the pandemic hit and we weren't able to return to India to do this work face-to-face. -face. So as we started to think, how can we continue the conversation and continue the science learning across the world, so very much in this format, right? Reaching the nuns through their one laptop in, in five different um, nunneries, five different um, you know, locations around India. And so we thought we need to have female voices. It needs to be science-centered. It needs to be accessible to spark their interests. And so we used your book, this last class with the nuns. So if you have not seen, you know, little snippets or video of it, we will send it to you of the nuns using your words, using your book. And so we took the women scientists from your book and created a slide deck to teach and videos and focus. And then we coupled a hands-on science project or investigation or, you know, conversation around it that tagged, um, some of the scientists that you listed for us. So it was the perfect reference resource book for us as teachers, but we just wanted to let you know that I don't think, you know, I told Tanya, I was like, who, what author in their wildest dreams would be like, who's going to be my audience and say, oh, Buddhist nuns in India, shut That's down awesome. in the pandemic, we're using your book as a way to connect with us and connect with science and the very last class that we that we had with them this last class session you know we were asking them about um like who do you think a scientist is now and who and we had them pick one of the scientists that we highlighted through your book you know um who spoke to you who did you connect with and why is this person why is this female so awesome and then they just were popcorn sharing this person is awesome and here's why and I connect with this because I'm into astronomy too. And I love Jane Goodall, you know, because we have monkeys all over India, you know, just all of these things. And we just sat back as teachers and thinking we never could have anticipated how much they loved it, how much these nuns who have very little formal education, how much they connected with your work. So we wanted to let you know that that was your audience for us, you know, um, through your book. So thank you. That makes me so happy to hear. Oh my goodness. Uh, please send me those videos. I need yeah. to see those videos. That is wonderful. Um, you want this is a like a little goofy fun fact, but um as a graphic designer, and I know I know this is a very different like sect of being a nun, but uh uh like Book of Kells and the way that like they're so heavily illustrated and they're so ornate and they're such a celebration of the text that actually like influenced me a lot with like how dense and like illustrated and celebratory I want to make my books like I think about that a lot um you know and it's just like stuff like Book of Kells also like Victorian old like sort of like overly illustrated advertisements mm -hmm. things like that um just celebrating the text so that it's like a feast. Um, I think it it makes people who are very, very different connect with the same material 
because there's something about illustration that transcends um, into just becoming like a a like shared human experience, you know, mm. more so than just words on on you know words on uh, the page can do, and it's actually really exciting. Um, this book has been translated into about like 25 different languages, um, including like Farsi, which is a really hard like thing to get for a translation subright, and like Polish and Chinese and Korean and Russian. It's just like it's all over the world, and it's it, it's just really cool to see so many teachers use the book in so many different ways and how these young girls around the world um they find someone at least one person in the book to connect with and yeah. it's oh man those nuns i gotta see oh. those nuns oh, no. <laughs> got 33 buddhist nuns in india that know your work and and loved it and connected with it so success Chen. that's wild that's Chen. wild oh crazy right that's like beyond my wildest dreams that's amazing yeah, that's why this was so cool, just the serendipity of life. And the nuns would tell me, teacher, it's the universe, right? Like you should lean into what the universe gives you. But just that, so that I got to be a part of this where you were the book that we just used with the nuns. I'm like, sure, it all comes around. It's all good. I love it. Very that's cool. wild. That's wild. And it's so interesting because while researching like uh, just women's history, it mm -hmm. is like, a lot of times it is like these monostatic places um, that were the first outlet for women to get education, right. you know, like the f most of the first female artists, they were nuns. Um, a lot of like the first, the first female author actually, who's in woman in art, she was a nun. Um, gosh, I'm like forgetting her name off the top of my head because um, right now I'm writing my next book. And whenever I write a book, everything leaves my head except for the book I'm writing at the moment but yeah she um i think it's christina um yeah christine de pizan wrote the first feminist text ever period as a nun where she like imagined a world um a world protected from the violence of men and she wrote like, um, and I got to write about it in this little book. Um, and it's all about how she was like the, she was also like the first female art director and pretty much the first art director, which is really cool. Like no one used to do this at the time. She would pick out which artist she wanted to work on her writing. And then she would direct them within the illuminated manuscript of what she wanted where. And a lot of times she also hired other female artists, which was really, really cool. Ooh. But um, her, yeah, her book, the, uh, the City of Ladies is like, recognizes the first feminist text ever written period. So um, yeah, she's really cool. I, I, I had to include her in the book. Um, even though she's more of an author than an illustrator, I believe like her art direction made these her work so successful and that's why she's in Woman in Art. Wow. Now, art is so clearly intertwined with the words on the page in your book, so clearly. Will you talk to me and you know about what that process is? Does it start with your art? Does it start with an image? Does it start with a story in your head? How do, how do you weave those? Because they're very, they're very symbiotic, right? Like on, on the page, I feel like they feed each other. So talk to us about that. So for me, so there's like a big philosophy within graphic design and design in general, which is form follows function. Mm -hmm. So um, for me, it's all about function. And with that, it means doing a lot of research and learning what kind of information you want to present before you even start. So it starts with the research and that that kind of draw is the driving force on the illustration. And when we talk about type, we talk about this thing called a typographic hierarchy. And a typographic hierarchy is what allows you to look at, let's say, for example, a Coca-Cola advertisement and you feel like you're you have processed all the information immediately without really reading. It's because um, the most important words are standing out to you um, in a way where your brain just processes them immediately. And then like there's a secondary set of words and then there's like a third set of words. So when creating my work, I think about the typographic hierarchy. What are the most important things and what are um, the things that are going to take a little longer to read? So um, when I create a piece of artwork, I like to include type within it so mm -hmm. that um, it kind of tricks you into reading without reading. Mm 
right. which again, as like a kid, that's what I needed when I was a kid. Um, so I always say you can flip through my books and learn a ton without feeling like you read a single word with just the flip through. Yeah. Um, so especially in my women in books, I, you know, I, I choose um, kind of fun facts to intertwine within the illustration. Of course, there's a quote at the bottom. Um, if that's all you read about each woman, bravo, you learned something. I'm very happy. I'm very satisfied. Um, then I uh, think about um, fun facts that I'm going to do an inlay around the border to be another secondary like illustration thing for kind of exploration. So I think about it, it's like, oh, if they just wanted to like explore each page without reading the more denser set type, which is kind of like the little essay about each woman, what are they gonna learn there? And for that, I, I like like to choose things that are silly, things that are um, kind of like emotionally resonant, like who are they as a woman, you know what I mean? And then also um, kind of just like like kind of like accolades and just sort of like what what's the bang for the buck there? So I do that and then in the center that's where I do their biography. So for me I think about like those are the layers. So if you are a very small child picking up my book, you can actually read and tackle just the sentence fun facts. And then with your parent or with your teacher, you can tackle the middle. And that's how I've been able to create a book that is used at the elementary school level, middle school level, high school level, and even used in colleges, yeah. is by creating a hierarchy of text, a layers of information that are accessible in different ways. And so as you grow with these books, you can actually access the information in different ways. It'll click with you in different ways. And um, there's not as much fear approaching the information. Mm -hmm. So that's how I approach everything. And even in my book, What's Inside a Flower, which is written for elementary schools and elementary school teachers, I do the same thing, but opposite. I make the text that is set the easiest to read. And then I draw really interesting fun facts and like um, uh, labels that are maybe higher level vocab. So if as a kid, you're reading the large set text, and then um, as you grow up with the book into middle school, because it ages up all the way to middle school, um, you can like kind of read the definition of photosynthesis read re, nematode, oh, uh, you know, <laughs> pollination, all that cute stuff. So um, I did an opposite way of doing it there where um, instead of um, the set copy being for the oldest reader, it's actually for the youngest reader. Love that, I love that. Uh, and I want, to, I want you to talk about your new book. I'm very excited as an elementary school teacher, but first I have to ask, I would just kick myself if I didn't, your books are, I mean, women empowerment for sure, um, um, but also very science centered, all of your books, all of them. And so talk to, and as I was listening to you talking about your journey to be this amazing illustrator author that you are, I didn't hear like, oh, I was always passionate about science growing up. So tell me where, and I know you, you articulated the gaps in science and in STEM for women, but where did that dovetailed up for me. Where did your science love come from? So science was always like a big part of my life. It was always something I was like interested in. Um, my mom's a computer programmer. My dad, before I was born, he was, I, he has a master's in bio research and he was a researcher. But before I was born, he became a videographer who filmed like bar mitzvahs and weddings and quinceañeras. So like, he was never like science guy when I was growing up, but he had like a really rich science background. So scientific literacy was really high in my household. And it was just kind of expected to be high in me and my brother. Mm -hmm. um, whether or not we were going into the sciences, like that's a different story. Mm -hmm. um, but for me, what really clicked was I, in high school, I took a human anatomy class and I was lucky enough to have a human anatomy class as something that you could choose to do in your science curriculum. And for, that's when everything clicked. By learning more about my own body, from the macro, like this is what my teeth are for, to the micro, how are the chemicals in my saliva breaking down this bread I'm eating in my sandwich? Yeah. I, uh, I learned, like by learning about that, I had a better understanding of my own body and a better understanding of the world around me. And it was affecting my decision-making on a subconscious level because I understood how my body worked. I could make healthier choices. Yeah. What if 
we instilled that kind of level of scientific literacy for everyone. Um, I, whether or not you're going into the sciences, everyone needs a basic understanding of science and they need to be able to understand how the world works around them so they can then make informed decisions. I think there is a struggle for scientific literacy in this country. I think it is important for us to get kids to not feel afraid of science and also get the adults they live with not afraid of science. Mm -hmm. um, for me, um, one of the things that was keeping me up at night was thinking about climate change a lot. And I thought, what can I do to kind of like help teachers and also like just help the general public kind of want to combat climate change. Mm. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that people don't even have a basic understanding of ecology and of ecosystem science. And that was actually the first step. How can they know that um, it's really important for us to like, uh, you know, farm responsibly if they don't understand what plants even need in the soil? You know, so that's why I actually I wrote the book, um, The Wondrous Workings of Planet Earth. And in this book, I profile different ecosystems around the world, but I really focus on this thing called ecological benefits. What is nature providing us that is irreplaceable that we need to protect? Because it's not enough to be like, the koalas are cute, so that's why we need to save like, you know, the Australian rainforest. Like, that's fine. You could think koalas are cute, but koalas existing is actually like a measure of how strong that ecosystem is. And what is that ecosystem doing every day for us, macro and micro, that we cannot replace if it goes away. And so by instilling that into each of these kind of profiles of each of these different places, while talking about the ecosystem science, um, I wanted to get people motivated to do what they can to protect our planet. So um, that was a big driving force for me. And then everything I do is kind of through this lens of how can I provide help towards learning the basic information so then they could care about these issues in a real way. Absolutely. And it is meaningful. And like you, you know, you were explaining about the different levels of accessibility, even on the page. So, I mean, I'm an elementary school teacher and STEM coordinator. So I use your books to have small kids access it, but anybody can, and you can dial it up. You can dial it down based on what your audience needs. And it's really rich and beautiful. Thank you for doing this work and for your writing. Well, it's interesting when you think that the news is written at an eighth grade level. Right. But especially when you talk about science, I don't think most people have retained their third grade science education. So it's like, when I write these books, yes, I'm writing them for kids, but I'm also writing them for the adult that's in the room reading it to the kid. Um, because uh, I want them to be interested and I also want them to learn too, even if it's just a refresher. Yeah. No, and the work you're doing is critical on, on a number of levels, but so often the elementary school ages are neglected in science like interventions because if they're even getting science literacy in the elementary school levels, because so often it's not required content, nothing against math and reading and writing, like obviously those are key, but to infuse science literacy into that work because yeah, the research I was reading, you know, talking about how science identity and STEM identity are being like enforced between ages 10 and 14, like by in those ages, kids are being like, yeah, this is for me or no, it's not for me. So if they haven't had exposure to rich text, to beautiful pictures, to, you know, inviting, engaging conversations, we're going to lose them. We're going to lose them. So more importantly, to have your books in the classroom. You know, it's really interesting that you say that because there's also a lot of things that are science that we don't recognize as science. Like a kid who likes to go outside and garden and play in the mud and look at worms at age like seven. That could be a future botanist if we explain to them that observation is a part of science and explain to them the mechanics about what's going on. And that's really what I wanted to do, do with my book, What's Inside a Flower. I read elementary school curriculum and I saw what was being taught in classrooms for elementary school. So I wanted to create a series that aligned with that, but felt like this is a book I'm reading for fun at bedtime. I noticed that there was a lot of books about flowers and a lot of books about science, but 
the books about flowers were just like fun books about flowers and was just fully narrative. And the books about science were fully science. And I just kind of wanted to create something that just felt like a fun picture book that just taught the lesson straight out. So that's what I tried to do with um, What's Inside a Flower. And I'm especially during, it released during the pandemic. And I've been seeing uh, both teachers and um, parents who have become homeschoolers overnight, homeschooling teachers overnight, use this book to teach that lesson and then like add on to it with backyard exploration that they could do in the park by their house or in their own backyard. Wow. And that's like, I don't have it yet. So that's the next book I need to get. So in your, um, yes, perfect. Yes. Oh, and of course the art is stunning. So, oh, look at that. Yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> so you talk about like the actual, like, Oh, I, I go into it. We go from a seed in the ground. We talk and we go deep. We talk about the minerals that the seed is using in its nutrient rich soil. We talk about the functions of each part of the flower because that's a basic part of biology is like, you know, each part of your body has a different function. Each part of this plant has a different function, you know? Right. We have pollinators. We go, we do the whole circle of life with it. So, um, and it's a part of a series. I'm going to be doing What's Inside a Bird's Nest, where I focus on the biology of the, the bird developing. And I talk about different birds in their environments. And then I'm going to be doing um, What's Inside a Butterfly Cocoon, which again, another life cycle, science, metamorphosis, right. genetics, all of it. Thank you for right. doing that. Thank you for creating books that get kids outside as well. But oh yeah especially how important have we learned that is during the pandemic to um, take education outside and, and, and kind of also approach it outside of the classroom in a way where kids can learn hands-on by themselves if they need to. That's awesome. Thank you, Rachel. Oh, thank you. And thank you for sharing that story about the nuns. Like, I feel like I'm going to cry. I'm so happy. <laughs> Brian and I both cried. <laughs> we're all just crying. We're all crying. So we're we're gonna bring bring a close to the show, and 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 I added a piece of art to the the slideshow because I was like, I'm not sure if viewers can see how incredible our artwork is. But I just I just want to say that like my thumbs are so sore because I was texting every science teacher I know, every science educator of teachers that I know, to say you have no idea what's about to be released. You have got to hear. Sonia and Rachel discuss this work um, because it's a missing link. And you know, as a teacher, you're always looking for those missing links to become a better teacher. This is this this was stupendous. I, I can't wait. I can't wait for everyone to hear what the two of you have discussed. Amazing. I thank you guys so much for having me. I'm gonna just drop you guys a little sneak, like some some sneaky information. Um, would you guys like to hear my newest release that's coming out March, 2022? You might have to that have you back. <laughs> I am, yeah, please have me back. I'm working on it right now. We just got it back from the fact checker. That's how deep we're into the working project. It's called The History of the Computer. Oh. Uh -huh. it, we go back all the way to prehistoric time, counting on your fingers and toes yeah. to the quantum computer. Yeah. <sighs> And we, we profile different people throughout history. And of course we have like the people that you obviously know like Steve Jobs and Bill Gates, but we also have some lesser people that um, you may not know, like, um, you know, the ENIAC women, the team of women who programmed the first electronic computer. And, um, you know, some of my all time favorites, we, we feature some hidden heroes in the NASA project, like of course, it's Catherine Johnson and um, Marshall, uh, I'm forgetting people's names right now because I just have too much information in my little <laughs> noggin. But um, yeah, uh, I'm really, really excited about this book. Um, it's going to be a game teacher about teaching technology in classrooms. A book like this doesn't exist yet. I'm very excited. Wow. You have to come back. I, I'm, I'm, I'm here for it. I'm here. Me and my vintage computer collection, me and my <laughs> 1977 Commodore pet are ready to come back for that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Brian did want to make sure that people got a picture of a page from your book. So um, 
put that up as a closing near closing shot um yeah i should say too like you went you talked about how you use kind of like middle school vocabulary and concepts for an elementary school book i'm telling you this is going to be used by high school teachers too it's i mean oh, I, I was so impressed by the depth of knowledge through the illustrations this this book is phenomenal that's why that's why i put it on the reading list for the national park book grant so Oh, thank you so much. And you know, I, I, I'm always like, never underestimate what a seven-year-old can learn. They can learn yeah. the, the, like they can learn the process of photosynthesis down to like the fact that it's using water, sunlight and carbon in the air. Like they can, they can understand that if we present it to them in a way that's friendly for a seven-year-old. Absolutely. Uh, Sonia, I'm gonna ask you to take us out with a writing prompt. You bet. In our writing into this moment, our prompt, I, I use Rachel's prompt from her I Love Science journal about naming three people in your life that give you strength. And Rachel has these incredible, incredible women in books. So women in science, women in art, women in sports. And so I would ask viewers or us to reflect, how does learning about women in science, art, and sports and Rachel's other books, how does it give you strength to learn about them? And how do these incredible women and Rachel inspire you? That is lovely. Brian, you often have a last word you want to say. I want to not take well, I, I was. I just think that once this gets out there, people are going to be sharing it. Um, they're just going to be sharing it because it's it's it was so knowledgeable. It was so inspiring. And it's and it's not only the work of your books, but it's what Sonia and the National Writing Project have done with them in, in international settings. Okay, that's my dog barking. And so my final word is just thank you. I mean, it really is an honor, an honor to have you on the show. Oh, it was an honor to be on the show. Thank you for sharing all these stories with me and um, supporting my work. It really means the world to me to have teachers like you support my work. My pleasure. And I always get the final thank you. So I wanna, Thank you, Sonia. I knew you would be perfect, and you were. Uh, I often um, hear some words in the show I want to say back. So, Rachel, I heard you talk about illustration as in your books as a dense, beautiful, celebratory feast. I think these books are that, and I this conversation was that. So, for me, th those words really captured the sense of this conversation. And my final thank you is always to the National Writing Project Network and all our uh, listeners and viewers. We're so glad you were here. We want to see you again. So follow us on Twitter at National Writing Project or Instagram. Join our Facebook community. Go to uh, nwp.org to sign up for our website or join us in the brand new Right Now Teacher Studio where teachers are sharing texts and ideas about how to use them even as we speak. Thank you, everyone, and good night. You're listening to NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. NWP.